Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. I am Gabrielle Hacohen. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we are here today to talk about Sadie's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We are here to educate and inform the listeners about this cult and promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. And I'm super excited about this episode. Um, This one's going to be a little more on the difficult side for me personally, but we're going to talk about some of my own steps on the road to freedom. So I think that I think it's important and I'm I'm excited to tell the story. So before we get into all of that, um, I would just like to say to the listeners that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully viewer supported podcast. So if you enjoy this content, you can subscribe to our Patreon where we have bonus content, including, you know, show outtakes. But uh, if you don't want to join our Patreon for whatever reason, you can also support us in other ways like recommending this podcast to your friends, uh, your family, your coworkers, you know, trying to trying to grow our audience. Uh, anywhere we can raise awareness of the real and present danger that IFB and, you know, other cult groups present to society as a whole. So uh, the third thing that you can do to help us out is, you know, maybe if you like other podcasts, you listen to other podcasts like interview podcast, 
maybe you know you listen to a different cult or a different true crime podcast uh you can write emails or message on social media to the host of those podcasts and say hey you know sadie gabrielle from the leaving eden podcast they would be great guests they're interesting and help us get the word out about what we're doing here um you know anything that that helps yeah i've been um i've been reaching out there are i don't want to i don't want to tip my hand too much on air but uh i know i know of a person who is looking for stories like ours and who enjoys telling stories like ours uh, and i reached out to that person via email this week so I'm, I'm sitting here with my fingers crossed that i hear back from from that person i have a couple other little you know i've been sending emails here and there to, to people that i think would truly fit with us and be interested Sadie, I know that we have spent um, the last while talking about the history of the IFB leadership and uh, First Baptist Church of Hammond leadership in our First Family of Fundamentalism series. Uh, and we talked about Jack Hiles, we talked about Jav- uh, David Hiles, we talked about Jack Scop. And so to our listeners, um, if you are tuning in now, you'll probably have that fresh in your minds. And if you haven't heard that before, I would recommend uh, you know going back and listening to those episodes, the five-part uh, First Family of Fundamentalism series. But but towards the end of last week's episode, we talked about something that really stuck in my mind and something that I really want to dig into. You were talking about how your need to believe Jack Scop was innocent was, you know, briefly, this belief was more important to you than your belief and your trust in your own father. And that kind of stuck out to me. And I know we kind of highlighted that point last week. But I was thinking that we could maybe get into that more because that really gets into the psychology of what's going on in this cult. Yeah, I think this is a good time to kind of dig into that. And I know that you've heard me say before that there isn't just one moment when I left the cult. This is a process. But there were a couple of key moments that started that process, like catalyst moments. And that moment that I described to you was probably the most dramatic of those those few key moments. It was a pretty dramatic reaction that you had. Extremely. I was, I remember throwing couch pillows. Wow. <laughs> so I have, a, so personally, well, I don't think you've ever seen me angry, angry, maybe at work. I've seen you, I've seen you like livid about something that's gone on and you're like, I'm so mad about this. Like, but you were like, sub, like, I got quiet angry. Yeah. You you got quite yeah. angry, and I was like, oh, mm. yeah. The she's peeved about something. It, I have a very long. I can go for a very long time on the quiet angry before it explodes into any kind of external angry. Uh, but when I get put, and I, I very rarely actually lose my temper. I have a long fuse, but when I do lose my temper, the first thing I do is start throwing things, Oof. and I just it, it is just my natural reaction. I hope I'm never on the other end of that. Um, Last time somebody was, I intended to throw a glass, like I had a glass of water in my hand. I intended to throw the water and the glass slipped out of my hand. And um, that's what my husband says is, yeah, that time you threw a glass at me, Um, which I did not. Is there trouble in in paradise? This was like two and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, but he still hasn't let me live it down because it's forever the time I threw a glass at him. I mean, I've had drinks thrown in my face. That was but... all, all I intended to do was like throw the water in the cup to express my disagreement with what he was saying. I truly did not mean to smash a pint glass that day. Was it from Ikea? Uh, no, don't think so. Oh, so it was, it was actually a quality product. No, wow. it was like a real pint glass. 
And I, I, I truly did not mean to anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do. I am, uh, I throw things when I get excessively mad and I kind of blacked out in that moment, but I remember raising my voice to my dad, which is something that I'd never done before or since. Uh, and I remember throwing anything that was under my hands, including couch pillows. And so this moment that we're talking about is the moment when um, Sadie's parents sat her and her two younger brothers uh, down to tell them that Pastor Jack Scott had committed some sort of, uh, you know, and they didn't know at the time, some sort of sexual impropriety and that uh, she didn't want to believe that this was true. She thought her father was lying. I, I'm really glad that this moment stood out enough to you for you to bring it up again, because that means that I told my story correctly, because that moment was was such a turning point, And it, it affected me so just so deeply that I think I think uh, the fact that you bring it up again tells me that I that I conveyed that correctly. Well, you know, during our first family of fundamentalism series, uh, we covered what happened to the Hiles family and what happened to the Scott family. But we didn't really talk about what happened to, uh, dare I say, the small people, like the regular churchgoers, you know, like Sadie and her family, that other than, you know, just generally the idea that a lot of them ended up leaving the First Baptist Church of Hammond or leaving the IFB altogether. So I thought that um, today, as we have just wrapped up that that series... This is almost like an epilogue. Right, because... um, I want, I want to get into my experiences during that school year at Hiles Anderson, um, my experiences and how, how this led me to get out of the IFB. Because this isn't, it is not cut and dry. It's not, you know, Scott turned out to be a rapist and therefore I wanted out. There are, there are a lot more factors there. And I think it's a story about uh, how does a person know when it's time to leave a cult? And so uh, you mentioned in episode two, you know, the the racism episode, when we were really digging into the talk about missions work, that some of the ideas and some of the doctrines that you were being taught just really didn't sit right with you. That aside from that, before Jack Scott was caught and before he was fired and before he was arrested, had you had any sort of feelings or, or desires that you needed to leave? So it's not that I ever felt like I needed to leave. And I think this is a distinction. I'm, I'm going to have to kind of struggle through making this distinction for you. So as a teenager, I did resent a lot of the rules. And I've always said that it's that you know it's really sad. I grew up during the scene era and I wasn't allowed to dye my hair and I wasn't allowed to wear black nail polish. How dare they not let you be a scenester or an emo kid? Listen, oh. I was meant to be an emo kid and my opportunity was stolen. <laughs> like I didn't even hear my chemical romance until I was way too old to experience it properly. I, I feel like um I feel like if you had been in like public school, if you went to like normal high school and not in the cult your favorite your favorite band probably would have been like Evanescence. So I do like Evanescence. I feel but also Panic at the Disco. I could have seen yeah. that being my favorite band. You know, I could see you being really into Paramore. Okay, but if we're making a list, okay, Dark Tranquility and Avenged Sevenfold. Oh that yeah, that could you know, I mean, I'm still a big Avenged Sevenfold fan. So A7X, yeah. I mean, you're a bit more of a metalhead. Like, so could, I could you not have seen me yeah. being an A7X girl in high school? <laughs> 
metalcore type thing too. Yeah, yeah with oof. like the like studded wristbands. That would have been your thing. And like the massive eyeliner that people were like the the complete all the way around your eyes eyeliner that people were doing back then. And the same hair as uh, <laughs> as uh, Keith Richards in the seventies. <laughs> Pretty much. I I see uh, that is you know I feel like it could have been some of those does more emo bands, but it definitely could have been a seven X. Anyway. Sadly, we will never know for sure what 15-year-old me would have been into because I was stuck sneaking into the church piano room to try to play songs that I had heard on the radio at the store. I learned bad romance around that time. That rocks. It sounds great on piano, honestly. I also knew how to play bad romance on piano. I had learned bad romance and I had learned, um, what is that... Oh, I had learned Baby by Justin Bieber, and I had learned Payphone by Maroon 5. I don't know Payphone, but I... I... It's, it's all the same era. Anyway, like, I was I was stuck just, like, sneaking in and trying to play these songs by ear and just dreaming of the purple hair that I would one day have. When I was a senior in college, my acapella group sang Baby by Justin Bieber, and you can find a video of me singing Baby by Justin Bieber. Oh, we have been blessed with a great gift. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I might edit that out and just leave that in for the Patreon just for <laughs> you. You can hunt it down if you want. See if you can find it. But like, I, I, I want to get back to this, this cult stuff, because even if you didn't know that you wanted to get out, the rebellious spirit was there, it was still in there. And so, I, you know, to me, I think that makes sense, because I generally see you as like a smart person. Like you're probably like one of the best critical thinking people that I know. And I have no doubt that the Christian schools that you were going to you know with them being really repressive you know that they just weren't really challenging you intellectually yeah so i was really sold out at the time though remember like until i was like 18 i I had very few doubts about this this whole thing so as far as okay so as far as wanting purple hair i was questioning whether having purple hair was actually a sin it wasn't that i was desiring to do something wrong it was that i was doubting if it was actually wrong yeah, but is doubting a sin? Um, doubting their teachings, doubting their doctrines, asking for change, is that a sin? Not accepting everything exactly as they say it? It's not a sin, but it's a sign of rebellion, and rebellion is a sin, because that's what got the devil kicked out of heaven. Out of curiosity, what does the Bible say about purple hair? Like, is there a commandment about it? No, um, I think the prohibition against, like, un- quote-unquote, unnatural hair colors probably came from, uh, I, we've talked about, like, Jack Hiles hated hippies, and so the the men at Hiles Anderson had to have short hair, women had to have long hair, men couldn't have any facial hair at all, and a lot of, like, a lot of his particular dress code regulations most likely came from the fact that he hated hippies. He was just not a fan of, of any kind of, like, counterculture type people. Oh, so. Okay. I think my my opinion is that the dyed hair thing comes from that because one thing that we would hear is that you know you have to look super professional at all times because they they want you they want you to dress like a weirdo because of their rules but they also want you to look normal and what that kind of when that's played out in practice you end up with baptist boys in khakis with a polo shirt tucked in with a belt and like short hair and you look completely alien, you know, you don't look like any teenager that has ex- existed after like 1981. You look like one of the, yeah, you look like a, the geeks and freaks and geeks. <laughs> but <laughs> that's like, they're they're trying to ape normality. 
and they see purple hair or excessive piercings or excessive makeup or tattoos uh, or those super cute stripey fingerless gloves that I wanted so freaking bad in high school. Um, mm. <laughs> they see all of that stuff as an expression of counterculture. The shirts with the thumb hole in them? Uh, I cut thumb holes in my shirts. And then just hit it <laughs> when people were looking. I also I wasn't allowed black nail polish, so I totally sharpied my nails. So another like another example of this that um, I remember you telling me about is that you wanted to learn about evolution so that you could debate people and tell them why evolution was wrong. So there are multiple things going on here, and that that's the point I'm trying to make. Like I wanted to dye my hair because I didn't think that having dyed hair was sinful. I wanted to learn about evolution because in my heart, I was still sold out to the IFB way of life. And like, that's how I, I saw the IFB as the ultimate pure Christianity. And if that phrase sounds slightly racist, I'll let you think about, I'll let you just sit on that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. There. Oh, that's an episode. (laughs) Going to write that one down. I think we already had that episode. Uh, I think that uh, there's more. I have learned so much since I wrote that and I'm just going to write another one. um, If you don't mind. Anyway, I wanted to learn about evolution because I wanted to debate people on a scientific level and like convert people to the IFB, which I really saw as like the ultimate Christianity. Like that's the the good, the the best, the most good you can do in the world is to convert people. Right. So like my intentions there are good. But if I wanted to just very good, just very misguided. But if I if I had a desire to wear jeans or if I had a desire to listen to Avenged Sevenfold, I accepted that within myself as a desire to sin, as a sinful desire. So what I'm trying to say is I had internalized these teachings so much that even things that I desired to do, uh, like wear pants or listen to regular music, I accepted that that was a sinful desire. So I hated myself and I just beat myself up for having sinful desires. You know, when we say that the the IFB is damaging to children, People who people like my parents who were never children or teenagers in the IFB raise their children in the IFB and all they think about is, oh, well, not going to movies isn't really going to hurt my kid or not wearing pants isn't going to psychologically damage my, my child, which is absolutely correct. I'm not psychologically damaged because I didn't go to movies. I'm not psychologically damaged because I didn't wear jeans as a kid. I'm psychologically damaged because I accepted that I... Anything that I wanted was sinful and because I hated myself for anything that I wanted and because I saw the solution to be striving for extreme asceticism in my life and I had pushed myself to like almost monastic levels of mental and physical control over myself at such a young age. And that's like, that's what that's the consequence of being raised in the IFB. It's not like, oh, I'm a little weird now because I never wore jeans. It's it's this accepting yourself as just completely messed up sinner and like how that affects you as a as a grown-up. So it would be accurate. While maybe, you know, you didn't have a desire to leave, there was a really strong desire for freedom. Yes, but I felt guilty for desiring freedom. Because I already have freedom within the IFB, remember? Because this is like ultimate Christianity. So I, <laughs> right. So I would push myself into more strictness, more prayer, more Bible memorization to try to excise that desire from myself. 
so I hope, I, so does that make sense? Like, it wasn't that I wanted to leave. It was that I was mentally preventing myself from even exploring the path to freedom. Yeah. So like in August, 2012, you're 19 years old and this is who you are. And then you find out that your beloved pastor is not just like a liar and an adulterer, but he's also a sex abuser and a criminal. Mm -hmm. And you've got this massive reaction of denial and then anger when you find out about this. Right. Because I have spent my entire life building these barriers of asceticism and self-control and you know, having this shakeup that causes me to start rethinking things because I had, you know, I talked about, oh, well, I had rethought some racist behaviors and thoughts from when I was younger. Uh, I had rethought some of some things like that that are just should be obvious to any good person. Uh, but I, you know, this, but yeah, this, the shakeup with, with Jack Scobb, uh, it just, I, it, I felt like my world was ending. You know, the stability, it, I just, I, I just, all of these roles that my life was built on and I felt like they were just falling down around me. So the stability in my life at the time was the strict rules at Hiles Anderson. And of course, every chapel sermon at Hiles Anderson is um, like at least every other message you're going to hear a, a message about how, you know, you got to do the hard thing. You got to do what's right and stay at Hiles Anderson and don't leave here until you graduate. If you're not here next semester, you don't love God and you might not even be saved. So that's like what you hear from the pulpit at Hiles Anderson Chapel consistently. So I just kind of defaulted to going back. So now I, I certainly wish I had done differently, but that was kind of, that was the only thing I could think of to do. Yeah. And I can certainly understand how uh, a structure and a familiarity might've seemed mm -hmm. comforting, but I mean, you mentioned that a lot of people didn't go back and that even your parents had advised you that you shouldn't go back. So is, is that really the thing that made you? So my entire life, I was sold this idea of what Hiles Anderson is. Uh, just starting when I was five or six, I was always, always hearing stories about Hiles Anderson. I was always sold this like advertising package of what it's like. Um, you know, you're going to be homesick, but you're going to have friends. You're going to, you know, you're going to be really close to your teachers and there's small class sizes. You're going to be involved in the bus route. You get to go to these huge, exciting church services at First Baptist Church of Hammond. And all of that had been like this package had been sold to me from the time I was like six. And that's what it was my freshman year. Really, it was really accurate to what the the advertisements, so to speak, had been my entire life. So my freshman year, it really wasn't so bad. Uh, and it was kind of what I expected. Like, yeah, there were hard things. The food wasn't great. My ministry was hard. I, you know, didn't quite get enough sleep. But it was accurate to what had been told to me of how it was going to be. So because my freshman year was objectively not so bad, I just had no idea of how off the rails things were going to go my sophomore year. And just like I had gotten angry at my dad when he told me about the scop thing, I had apologized to him, of course, when I found out that he was right. But I was still emotionally committed on that level to Hiles Anderson. And I didn't know anything outside the IFB world. So the idea of staying home and going to community college well, number one, that was more morally unacceptable because they would teach me worldly ideas. Uh, but it was also practically just terrifying. I had never used public transportation. <laughs> I had never been in a room where I was the only Christian or the only IFB person before. I had literally never been anywhere alone. I had never gone to Walmart alone. I'd never ordered food at a fast food restaurant by myself. 
even if I hadn't been brainwashed by the come back to Hiles Anderson and that this is where God wants you to be, the logistics, even though my parents wanted me to to stay home or, or either get a job or maybe go to community college, the logistics of trying to do anything different just felt completely out of reach. So you just didn't have any other options? Mentally, I didn't. So I could have gone to another Christian college or I could have gone to community college near home. Uh, but there was there was another factor that made it me think even more that I couldn't leave Hiles Anderson. So what was that? So I went to HAC under a program called the Jericho Plan, which was a SCOP invention. Basically, you would pay very little for your first two years and you would live by a strict schedule on campus. So your first two years, you would work like 20 hours a week for the college. You'd have all these extra required activities, extra required devotions. And it was supposed to be uh, a way to just like make optimize your first two years at college and you don't have to pay very much for them because you're basically on work scholarship. Oh, so it's like work study. But but not. Uh, so you'd be allowed to work off campus and actually pay your tuition the second two years. But if you left Hiles Anderson before finishing college, you'd be liable for about $18,000 for the first two years, regardless of how much work study you did. So if you leave, all of those hundreds and hundreds of hours of work study get canceled. They don't mean anything. Wow. Okay. That's really like manipulative. That's that's predatory, man. Yeah. So the Jericho plan is so predatory and I feel like it would need its own episode, but that's the basic idea. Once you've completed one semester, you feel completely incapable of leaving without graduating. You know, I was, I was 18 when I signed up for this, which is legally old enough, but I also... I had zero life experience, so I really didn't have any idea what I was doing. I mean, they talk about people talk about how um, expecting like a seventeen-year-old or an eighteen-year-old to agree to take tens of thousands of dollars in student debt is predatory. You know, people talk about that all the time, and you know, there's something to that. But I mean, this just seems an order of magnitude worse. You decide that you just want to go back. You want things to be back to normal. You're going back to Howells Anderson College. Do you think that? You would have wanted some other IFB pastor to just take Jack Scott's place and then for everything to be the same other than no Jack Scott. I mean, how, like, how in your mind were you reckoning with this idea of going back to Howells Anderson without Jack Scott being the pastor? I, I wasn't really concerned with who was the pastor because by this time I had shifted to being just completely angry at Scott and feeling like he messed everything up for everybody who had a good thing going. And I just wanted my tolerable life there back, where my worst problems were boy drama and being a little homesick, and sometimes it's cold on the bus route. I think in one of the earlier episodes, you said that your first year at Hiles Anderson, you were seen as somebody who was like in good standing with the administration. You know, you you got good marks in your classes and you followed all the rules. Uh, you know, to the best of your ability. Yeah. Like my, my freshman class was also fairly large because of the Jericho plan. Like how many people, how many people were in your freshman class? I think there were about 400. That's like almost as many as my freshman class. At there, yeah. There might have been, there might've been more. That's just off the top of my head. But I think I kind of flew under the radar my freshman year. Uh, I was more or less a rule follower. I did okay in most of my classes. I had a few Disney songs on my iPod, but I didn't get caught. Uh, I think at that time, I was just a cog in the wheel. The biggest splash I really caused my freshman year was going to the Valentine's banquet twice. (laughs) What ended up being the next major factor in your decision to leave? So over my sophomore year, things started to change a bit. Uh, I was so... 
I was in a class where I had to teach lessons to the rest of the class. And a, a really popular Hiles Anderson boy who had gone to Hammond Baptist High School, uh, he would sit on the front row whenever it was my turn to teach and just call me a bitch like under his breath. So like the teacher couldn't hear, but I could hear and he would just sit on the front row and just curse me out the oh, entire time when I was teaching. Very nice. No. Mean? Uh, so, yeah, so how'd you react to that? I mean, I didn't even know all my cuss words yet. I think I might have learned some from him. You just knew that that one was bad. Well, I, I, I typically just figured if I hadn't heard a word before <laughs> at that point. But he, I mean, he wasn't calling you a schmendrick. I don't, what, is that a thing? What is this? It's a, it's a Yiddish word for like a, 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 a puts okay. or like a. No, yeah. so I, um, I reported him to the teacher in private. And she didn't do anything about it because surprise, surprise, she was a First Baptist Church member and her kids went to Hiles or her kids went to Hammond Baptist. So I reported it to the Dean of Students because this was extremely upsetting to me. Like this was just harassment and and not something I ever expected to face at Hiles Anderson of all places where this like the people are here to like become preachers and like Christian school teachers. And I felt like this was so unacceptable. So was it just to do with the fact that you were a woman or was it more to do the fact with like status type stuff? My perception was and still is that it was because he was a a Hammond Baptist graduate. But I I can't say for sure. I don't know for sure. And Hammond Baptist is the high school that's associated with Hiles Anderson, right? right? Um, So I turned this, this person into the dean of men who just did nothing about it. And this is extremely disturbing to me. Uh, so I guess this was like my first, this is, this is one of my first experiences feeling like I just didn't, some students didn't mattered more than others. And I saw other students like from Hammond Baptist or students whose, pa- whose fathers pastored large churches, uh, who sent a lot of students to Hiles Anderson. I saw other people just kind of get away with all sorts of stuff as well. And so the rules just didn't apply to these kids. That is what it looks like to me and to a lot of other people. So I did see some of this hypocrisy in my first year. But in my sophomore year, I start hearing things, uh, even from the pulpit, being said, like, uh, all of you lost your college chancellor, but the Hammond Baptist kids lost their pastor. Uh, so you need to be extra nice to them because they're hurting. And I feel like my my sophomore year, this favoritism just got a lot more intense because of uh, Hammond Baptist kids just, just they and they were legitimately hurting because they did lose a pastor. And that that is a painful thing to go through, I'm sure. But um, they just got away with everything my sophomore year. So was it just like low-key bullying that they would get away with? Or was it stuff that was more nefarious? I wouldn't say nefarious, but it was just all kinds of things. You know, dating rules, dress code, taking two desserts at lunch, mouthing off to teachers. These kids just got a little extra wiggle room on almost anything. So stuff that like you would normally get in trouble for, they get like a slap on the wrist and they'd be like, mm, don't do it again. But even if you do it again, we're not going to exactly. do anything. So yeah. here's an example. Um, I was in the dining hall and these two students who were dating, uh, they weren't Hammond Baptist kids, but they were definitely in the favored group of people because of who their parents were. These people are, are basically like rubbing noses in the dining hall. So they're, they're closer than they're supposed to be. And they're, they're causing a big scene because everybody else in the dining hall is kind of whispering, oh, look what they're doing over there. So a staff uh, member. That's gross. I mean, it, it, it is gross. Uh, I, sur- <laughs> I survived the drool pool. 
How how old are these kids? Uh, nineteen and twenty, maybe. Nineteen and twenty. Okay. Um. By the way, uh, somebody rem- somebody on Facebook reminded me <laughs> that that there was a drool pool. There was another hallway where dating couples were allowed to sit, and that one was called the Passion Pit. Just thought I would. Oh, like the band. What? There's a band called Passion Pit. Do you know Passion Pit? No, I don't. I'm sure Jonathan does. They were popular in like the late 2000s, like early 2010s, mm. sort of like an indie pop kind of thing. They have a dude, their singer can sing really, really high. Maybe they got, maybe one of them secretly went to Hiles Anderson, got the idea from that. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, um, so these, these two people like rubbing, like, almost touching noses in the dining hall, because um, we were supposed to stay six inches apart at all times. So a staff member who's working in the dining hall comes up to them and told them to stop more than once. And eventually she lost her, lost her temper with these two kids. And she had told them to, to back up and move away from each other several times. And she just lost it. So she's yelling at them. The whole dining hall can hear it. She's making a giant scene. And this couple starts yelling back at her and telling her off. But when she turned them in... They're yelling at her? Yeah, which is not... Like a school a school administrator. Yeah. So they blatantly what? broke the rules and then they yelled at a staff member in a public way and they didn't get in any actual trouble by the administration. They just got like talked to, like, don't do it again. So if you were like so if you were top tier and you went to Hammond Baptist, or like you could get away with touching the opposite gender. Yeah, or if your dad's church sent like eighty students to Hiles Anderson every year. So could you get away with kissing? Like, not publicly, but if you did get caught sneaking around, the penalty would be less for somebody like that. So could you get away with sex? So I can't say from people that I actually know. I can tell you that there are rumors every single year. I can confirm that these rumors have gone on since at least 1983. Every single year about so-and-so and so-and-so were caught at a hotel together and they didn't get expelled. And I can tell you that 95% of those students who fall under those rumors, at least one person in the couple went to Hammond Baptist. Oh, okay. So this is clearly, yeah, this is clearly a tiered system. Right, but I can't, like, I don't know, like, I don't know any of those people personally because I didn't associate, I didn't associate with a lot of Hammond Baptist kids. So there's at least the perception that this is, this is, like, true, though. There is, everybody thinks it's true, I can tell you that. Yeah, and so there was no way that you could have made your way into this like top tier without putting more money into Hiles Anderson College or First Baptist uh, Church pockets through either your dad sending more students there. When you said that you turned down the possibility of going to Yale, I was, you know, I'm thinking now, you know, maybe Hiles Anderson and Yale they got something in common with the the nepotism. Yeah, the, the- no, I think that's I think it's a good point. I certainly didn't go to Hiles Anderson expecting just to be able to flout the rules. No, why would you go to Hiles Anderson if you didn't want a place with a ton of rules? Right. But I sincerely thought that my dad's good reputation and his years of pastoral work would put me in the same social standing as somebody whose father was a pastor with a good reputation and years of pastoral work. It didn't occur to me that the size of the church would be such a big, would completely negate my dad's like 20 years of faithful work. Mm-hmm. A- and I really, really thought that the fact that I was a good kid and the fact that I worked hard, I thought I would automatically be one of those top tier students 
Because being a top tier favored student, there are benefits far beyond being able to get away with things. You know, you could get chosen for college sponsored singing groups. Uh, you can get asked to be a leader in your ministry. You can be an assistant to one of the popular teachers. It goes on and on, like the benefits for you if you are seen to be in that top tier. So I really thought going to Hiles Anderson that because people knew who my dad was and because I tried my best and because I really believed the IFB way of life, I really thought that I would be in that group. And it was starting to occur to me that no matter how hard I worked, I was already behind the game because my dad's church was smaller. So the only other way to rise to that top tier was to work. But the level of physical work that that would entail was completely beyond my capacity. Like I was in class working or volunteering about 80 hours total a week. And that's not counting homework or any kind of social life. Mm. So I physically could not have done any more than I was already doing. And I would have to be on the level of working closer to 100 hours or 120 hours a week to actually get to that top tier, to actually get ahead like that. Sounds like a really toxic environment. It was. And and so you're also, you have to remember that the food is terrible and it's hard to get enough nutrition because what they serve on the main dining hall line is just slop. Um, So your only other option is eating off the salad bar line, uh, which is uh, healthier, but no protein. So I, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting enough nutrition. I, I wasn't sleeping enough. So eventually, I just kind of gave up on trying to reach that top tier. I was much more interested. I burned out at like 19 and a half. And I became a lot more interested in doing the bare minimum. But at this point, like you're what, partway through your sophomore year. And so you're essentially locked in to stay for two and a half more years. Right. So I'm... I'm not quite 20, uh, completely physically and emotionally burned out and terrified to leave because of the Jericho plan. And I'm also was starting to have some interpersonal conflicts with other students. And I was getting close to a breakup with my first long-term boyfriend, uh, who I did realize I haven't given him a name yet. So we're going to call him Noah. One side of this that we haven't really touched, like, how are you feeling spiritually? Because, I mean, months earlier, you were a thousand percent in on that plan of salvation. And you were a thousand percent dedicated to being Baptist and by like IFB standards of being Baptist. But how are you feeling now with all of this stuff sort of kind of starting to come apart? So I was trying to just lean in to that whole spirituality thing like harder. So the worse things got for me, the more conflict I had interpersonally and the more unfair things felt around me, the more I tried to read my Bible more and pray more. Just really tried to throw myself into just hours and hours a day reading my Bible and praying. I would actually pray walking up and down the steps of my... So I lived in a three-floor dormitory, and I would walk up and down the stairwell to pray so I wouldn't fall asleep praying. So I was getting counseling from a staff member at Hiles Anderson, uh, and that person knew that I was feeling suicidal. So they gave me a book by Jack Scop, who was already in prison at the time. Uh, about how to overcome depression. And the advice in that book was mostly pray more and read the Bible more. Jack Scott definitely seems like he's a licensed professional in uh, the... Yeah. In 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 a psychological medical field that would... For sure. Know how to, know how to do that. So uh, like we covered earlier, though, this is a group that, you know, and this backs that up, is that 
it keeps you emotionally isolated. Like if you're having trouble, like when you said that your grandmother died, you were always just taught, oh, go to God with this instead of talking to a person. Oh, I think you're talking about my grandfather. If you're talking about uh, what happened when I first went to Hiles Anderson, like early, early at Hiles Anderson, literally don't talk to me. I don't have time for your issues. Why don't you just go pray about it? <laughs> yeah. So what, ha- like, what happens to a person when they keep praying and they keep reading scripture and they, you know, pray read, pray, read, rinse, repeat, like nothing changes. So I think I just figured at some point that that was just my cross to bear. You know, it's just God's will for me to be depressed and to feel suicidal. But if I give in and hurt myself, then I have sinned and I've disappointed God. So uh turns out God just want, I, I guess I just figured God just wanted me to be miserable and that he'd fix it whenever he got done with me being miserable. At this point, is your social standing still good? At this point, I feel like I had just been forgotten. Like I feel, I felt like I perceived at the time, I felt like I had no social standing. Like I had just kind of become invisible in the system. The SCOP scandal was still ongoing. And I think that contributes because the leadership was so involved with trying to keep the place afloat that there was less attention on individual people. But you didn't think that maybe like somebody coming to a counselor with alarm bells ringing, like a teenage girl saying, I'm feeling suicidal, that there was, you know, God forbid the suicide of a young woman at this Bible college that was already mired in scandal, like that that might cause them even more problems. Like, for, like even from like a cold and pragmatic perspective, the lights were like just really not on upstairs in this place. So I know of at least one other student who was telling staff that he was suicidal around the same time as I was, and he got the same advice as I did Mm. Um, in the same (laughs) scop book (laughs) about how to read your Bible so much that you don't have enough time to kill yourself. Sorry, that's dark. You might need to cut that, (laughs) but it's I'm not going to I'm not going to cut that, but that's like, I mean, I I, that's how you think it's accurate. I'm not going to cut it. Yeah, I do. Okay, then I'm going to leave it in. Okay. Um, so there actually was a suicide of a different student not long after I left. And this other, this person who, this person who died uh, was well known at Hiles Anderson. They were a, a popular student. Uh, and I only know that how the method of their death, because I know someone who knows someone you know, who was a roommate of theirs at the time Mm. and who unfortunately found that person's body after they had died. I watched the the live stream of their funeral because First Baptist Church typically live streams uh, people's funerals. So there are people from around the country who had gone to college with them that would have wanted to be present at their funeral, but couldn't travel for it. So that's why it would have been live streamed. And this is a, a really common thing among especially First Baptist Church of Hammond, uh, but other I, larger IFB churches as well to live stream a funeral. It's typically a little more, uh, what do I want to say, a little more discreet as in how they frame their camera angles, etc. Um, I've seen some that weren't, but that's another story. The YouTube cam on the body just being like... I have seen people do that. Um Typically, it's a little more discreet. It's either a closed casket or they aim the camera where you don't see that, which I think is a a good deal more, yeah, maybe respectful or a good deal more toned down. Anyway, um, this student 
did commit suicide shortly after I left, there was no mention of how they died in at the funeral. Uh, everybody was just super talking in circles around it. Um, the, you know, this person died tragically or this person died unexpectedly. And like, I know what happened because I know somebody and it was, it was one of these things that is unequivocally a suicide. There's no question. Yeah. But I mean, they do that. They do that a lot of places. They try to be discreet about it. They, they don't like broadcast. Like, if you ever see an obituary of somebody and it doesn't say how they died. Yeah, or an overdose is that's another reason that that could happen. Um, yeah, but so I'm sure. Anyway, based on that and how the inside information that I have about that story, I believe that if I had died at that time while I was a student at Hiles Anderson, uh, they would not have publicized how it happened. They would have just said accidental death and just covered it up. Maybe even tried to make it look like an accident for the. But that's just complete conjecture. I mean, it's not the first time that people involved with Hiles Anderson have made a young person's death look, look like, like an, an accident. accident. Exactly. They would have. They would have uh, embalmed your body <laughs> and sent me to Texas, only to make sure that they like. Well, I mean, you could have been popping tons of amphetamines if you were trying to like be successful at that school, dude. That would have been helpful. <laughs> But no, I, I'm convinced that they would have at least verbally tried to cover it up. I feel in my heart that they might have even tried to make physical changes to cover up the manner of death in order to mm. not be investigated. Yeah, because if there's like a young woman who who dies by suicide, like you don't think somebody from the outside would have looked into it, you know, considering that their leadership was currently in the process of going to jail for sex abuse. Yeah, you would have thought that somebody would have looked into it, but the fact is that the that the people who knew that I was feeling suicidal, I'll get into this in a minute, but I, I have real good reason to think that they didn't tell anybody. Were they mandatory reporters? As far as I know, that person would have like at least one of these people would have been a mandatory reporter. And as I, I have reason to believe that they never reported to anybody. Be and so no outside investigator, if my suspicions are correct and they didn't actually report to anybody, no outside investigator would have had any way of knowing that there was any kind of foul play or anything behind the scenes to investigate. It would have just looked like, you know, sometimes young people tragically commit suicide. This school sounds like an awful place. Well, I think this illustrates, like, this is a clear illustration of how different my sophomore year was from my freshman year, because... By my sophomore year, by halfway through, so coming back off of Christmas break in January of 2013, I really only went back out of fear of the Jericho loan. And by halfway through that spring semester, I was trying to come up with an escape plan to get myself out alive. And this is this is another key that we would never have had time for in the second Scop episode. Looking back on this, the drama that I was going through that was making me feel so awful that I wanted to die was really small, petty things that could be handled well by someone who was a well-adjusted adult. Like the only out of 10 things that were bothering me. Okay. I was getting bullied by that one dude in a, in a class and nobody was helping me. Uh, you know, I was, I was having this problem and that problem. The only thing that I couldn't handle now, just take care of on my own, uh, was the one person who was threatening me. And I think this is a prime example of how a cult's insular nature makes internal problems feel like the end of the world. 
because I'm living in a world I have no outside world, world social skills at all. And I'm living in a world with no movies, no music, no concerts, no internet access that isn't highly filtered. Nothing to think about except for my interpersonal drama and the rumors that were going on about me. So what what sort of rumors were going on around you? Because we mentioned a few episodes earlier oh, that, right. you, <laughs> that you started out like fairly well-respected, fairly well-regarded, but then by the end, you were below, below, below the bottom tier. So, um, yes, those rumors. Uh, this is a little hard for me to talk about. It's a little awkward for me to talk about, but people do ask me. So I feel like I want I uh, want to go ahead and just tell my side of the story. Yeah, let's get it out there. Okay. So I had gone through a breakup. And I pretty quickly started dating someone else, which was a bit of a social faux pas. So I tried to keep that new relationship secret. I thought, you know, not publicizing the new relationship would be the most respectful thing for my ex. Uh, And that plan just completely backfired on me and just made me look sneaky. So I know that the IFB have a lot of rules about stages of relationships and such. So how much is seen as an appropriate amount of time to wait? I don't think there is a set amount of time People were really fans, if that makes sense, of my first relationship. People were like paying attention to us, and then people were bummed out when we broke up. People shipped you guys hard. Yeah, because again, like no movies, no entertainment. Like who's dating who is everybody's business, and there's like so much attention on that. Oh, there are so many yentas. Yeah, I mean, you go to college to find somebody to marry. It is your life. Working on your MRS degree. I'm sorry for using that that horrible like outdated sexist oh, trope. Oh no, I would have said that at 18. Like I would have oh. said that about myself at 18. <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, I've come a long way, baby. <laughs> oh my gosh, no, like I don't hold that against you at all because I would have said that at one point in my life. So I want to fully admit, like as far as we're on, as long as we're on this topic, and we're being honest here. Yeah. The way I handled this particular situation with the breakup and the new relationship, I was selfish and I was graceless. I should have broken up with Noah, that first boyfriend. I should have broken up with him long before I did. In a normal non-IFB relationship, I would have seen the incompatibilities much sooner. And I could have broken up with him sooner, caused less pain, walked away better friends than we did. I also, I could have handled that new relationship in so many better ways. So I was just, I was hurt. I was burnt out from my time at HAC. I was not in physically or mentally or emotionally in good shape at all. And I just did not care what I did. I just wanted what I wanted. So I kind of acted out in like a very selfish and, and in like a very selfish way. Yeah, but that isn't anybody's business except for yours and his. And if people are putting their like nose somewhere that it doesn't belong, there's no excuse for them to be mad when they don't like what they see. That's true, but this is not a normal adult environment. So I don't want to excuse my behavior because I was selfish and I did not like I, I the way I handled that relationship transition, I would never do that today. I, I had no idea what I was doing. But you're absolutely right. There was no reason for me to be under so much scrutiny. So those rumors are going around. Yeah. So is that what is, is that what did it? So after that, so I had kind of drawn attention to myself with this whole breakup thing. And then like rumors started spreading. So the big rumor 
that we're going to just address right now was that I had a three-way in a storage closet with two guys. Number one, so I did enter a storage closet with two young men. We were in there for literally five minutes, if not less. So it was the least satisfying three-way in recorded history. (laughs) It was the most Hiles Anderson student imagined out of thin air three-way in recorded history. (laughs) (laughs) So what were you guys actually doing in there? Uh, I was putting a box of things into storage. So I walked in, like taped up my box, put the box down, collected some things that I needed from my storage area and walked out. Isn't spreading rumors and supposed to be like the sin of gossip? Like you told me earlier that your mother didn't even want to hear all of the rumors going around about David Hiles. And this was just something that they made up to, to mess with you because you were like a low person. They could punch down on you. Yes, spreading rumors is supposed to be the sin of gossip, uh, but people people do it anyway. They would just say, oh, pray for my friend Sadie. Uh, yeah. She <laughs> just had a, a, a three-way in a storage locker with two guys. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, I, so do you have any idea who started this rumor? I actually don't, which is a little odd. So years later, after kind of getting myself in order... I kind of want to know who started it just for my own amusement, uh, but I haven't been able to turn it. I have a couple of suspicions. Uh, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of who it was, but I've never been able to find out for sure. So here, wait, so like how, when did you find out that this was something that people were saying about you? Like, cause I assume that you're like, okay, let me go pack this box up. Okay. I'm going to go into the storage locker, pack this box up. <laughs> I'm going to go about my day. Then when do you find out that there's a rumor about you? Like, so uh, people started asking me about it. Um, how long after? Uh, I don't know because my sense of time was totally skewed because I was in like so much stress and drama. Was it like a few hours, a few days? Like probably like a few days to a week. Uh, but my, I was talking to my friend Alicia about this, and she said, um, she, she said she asked me face-to-face like hey did you have a three-way with those two dudes in the storage closet and my reaction was along the lines of what's a (laughs) three-way no people started asking me and i didn't really like i knew i didn't whatever that was i didn't do it um but i really didn't know what i was being asked i'm gonna just chalk this one up to these sheltered bible bashing kids don't know how sex works yeah which totally tracks given what we know about the way that they Given what we know about the way that sex and relationships and, and dating are handled within the IFB. But- yeah, that's that's kind of... It was a silly rumor. And the, the problem is that it took because it was like the juiciest thing that anybody had gotten their hands on since SCOP, uh, the last major Hiles Anderson uh, sex scandal. Um, so from then on out, I would go to the dining hall and like sit down at a table full of people who used to be my friends. And they would all take their plates and stand up and walk away. I mean, if it were me and I had just found out that my friend had had a three-way with two dudes in a storage locker, I would give that person a high five after offering them some hand sanitizer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think I got the opposite reaction. No, actually, I got the exact opposite experience because I didn't have the three-way. And then I also got shamed for having a three-way that I didn't have. Um, Bummer. There was one. So Alicia was the only person who completely stuck with me. And just, you know, when I would sit down at the, t- I, I remember so clearly there were these Hiles Anderson dining hall round tables that had eight chairs 
and I went and sat down. There were seven people at the table and I went and sat down to become person number eight at this table and six other people stood up, took their plates and left. And Alicia was the only person who would sit with me in the dining hall. And she listens to the show now and she's my lifetime friend and I love her very much. Well, you know what? If you are listening to the show and you are the person who made up this rumor about Sadie having the three-way in the storage locker with two dudes um, and you want to come on this show oh and, have a, and have a Mia culpa. <laughs> Like I mean, she's out now. We're all out now. I mean, we can we can like, laugh I'm about cool it with now. It, okay, and this is it's funny now. Like, I mean, there will be some. I'm sure that there will be some like some some resentment, but I mean, th- th- you, you know, know what? This one. We just had Yom Kippur. Where I'm feeling in, uh, you know, and you should be feeling in a mood to uh, to to have some atonement for your sins, um, especially a sin of ridiculous gossip that doesn't even make sense. You know, I would want at this point, I would be so willing to put my any residual anger at whoever started that rumor aside and just like find. I want to know what about me gave the perception <laughs> because, like, at this time, um, yeah, I had not. Anyway, that was very innocent. And uh, I want to know what gave off the vibe <laughs> that I was having a quickie three-way in a storage closet. Quickie three-way, too. That's like the just... You, you know what that is? A bad idea. Anyway, um, no, like, I want to know what was giving off that vibe about me. And I want to know, like, what inspired this uh, epic rumor. Like, I would totally be willing to kind of put that put that aside if i found out it's the one person that i really don't like i'll make you talk to her on the podcast <laughs> but if it's not that one person then um well let's talk it out i'm ready to let it go i mean no matter who it is i'm probably gonna make fun of you a lot on you here make fun I'm of me gonna... a lot so can we take um jonathan needs to reset the the router for work reasons can we take like a five minute break okay i'm sorry i know that's inconvenient but he's got to do it so he no, can make it's fine i'm just I'm going to just hit the, the, the stop button. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now back to the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I'm trying to put you, put you in my shoes uh, leading up to the incident that almost got me expelled from Hiles Anderson College. So even with like all of this, oh, people are, are mad about you and your ex-boyfriend, and then people think that you had a three-way, yes. that's not what pushed you over the edge. Uh, no, I was, uh, all of this stuff, and, and I think this is, um, I'm sorry to keep harping on this, but I think this is a characteristic of cults. Like all of this had just consumed my life. Mm. I wasn't doing well. I was, I was failing classes. I was falling behind on, on other responsibilities. I was doing terribly, performing terribly at my work scholarship job. Uh, I just, this had eaten my life. The scop stuff is still happening. There are still reporters around. Uh, I still haven't gotten help from feeling suicidal months before. I'm still, I'm not eating properly. I'm not st- sleeping properly. Just like this had just like consumed my life to the point where that was all I could think of was the drama. So you're not doing great. I was not doing well. And in all of this, my new boyfriend put his arm around me to comfort me. And that's it. That's the terrible sin that almost got me expelled from Hiles Anderson. Wait, that's what did it? Honest to goodness. Your your boyfriend put his arm around you and that's what did it. I got After caught. After all of this. I got caught side hugging. Side hugging. And we were in a public but unapproved area. So it's like 2 p.m. and we were in a hallway where couples were not supposed to be after 1 p.m. So oh, daylight. Right. So this is one of those weird, this hallway is off limits during X hours on days of the month where the numbers add up to a number divisible by 3, 4, and 5. Yes. Like, <laughs> oh my God. This is one of those rules. Um, so for this terrible, terrible infraction of my life falling apart and getting a hug to comfort me uh i got we landed ourselves in front of the disciplinary committee in front of the disciplinary committee Mm -hmm. for a side hug yep for a side hug yes my freshman year i got a disciplinary hearing for having a fifth of whiskey and a fifth of vodka in my backpack and they just told me don't get caught next time okay so you're telling me so it was like 18 dude so they didn't like threaten to ruin your social standing, threaten to not let you finish the last few weeks of the semester, threaten to call your parents so they could punish you further if they wanted to, uh, and then also forbid you from talking to your girlfriend for the rest of the semester. So first of all, I didn't have a girlfriend at this time because, you know, this was first semester of freshman year and I was just trying to party. Fair. Second of all, this definitely didn't hurt my social standing because... If people know that you got called in front of the disciplinary committee for drinking, for having alcohol, um, then they know that you know how to party. And I mean, they didn't even take my liquor. They just let me what? keep my bottles. They let yeah. you keep it? Right. Yeah. Because basically it was in a backpack, so they couldn't technically search us because it was, I mean, it was just the RA on my floor that wrote me up because he heard me and my friends talking about bottles in the backpack. And then he heard them clink when we were walking down the hallway. Dude, being at a college where they can't search you, that must be nice. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he really didn't even want to write us up because he had to because we were being idiots. That's what happened. Wow. So young people out there, if you are listening to this, underage drinking is wrong and you shouldn't do it. But 
if you get in trouble for doing it, people will definitely think that you are cool. Yeah, the official position of our podcast is that we don't support underage drinking. But if you are going to make that choice, uh, don't drink and drive. At least give us that. Absolutely do not drink and drive ever. I joke about a lot of things. I am 100% serious about this. They have Uber and Lyft for, they have Uber and Lyft and whatever now and use those instead. A DUI costs like $10,000 and it's super inconvenient and it can literally ruin your life. Don't do it. I've <laughs> never gotten one, but I know people who have and you do not want to have to deal with that. You do, do not. not. Do it. Yeah. Just um, if you don't have money for Uber or Lyft, just, just like text some people. Cause like I've had friends text me like, yeah, Hey, can you call me a lift? And like, it, it's no yeah. big deal. But anyway, anyway, it's just, so it seems like that after the three way rumors, they were just trying to like, like looking for a reason to punish you and to get rid of you. That's totally possible because I did get called into somebody's office to get asked about like, Hey, did you have a three way in that storage closet? And I was like, no, I didn't. Um, I don't even know what a three way is. Right. But I think like, <laughs> I think that could have caused enough of a wave that they saw me as a troublemaker and they really just wanted to get rid of me. Like, I don't know what the politics of that were. And especially because they saw these, like you saw these higher social standing kids openly flaunting these rules and being like openly disrespectful to the school staff and nothing happens to them. Right. So I, you know, I know that there's politics here. Uh, they were over my head enough that I can't tell you exactly what they were. But here's what is interesting. So the discipline committee was headed up by the the vice president of the college who happened to be Jack Scott's son. Uh, so this fella... Ahead of the sentencing, he had organized a nationwide letter-writing campaign asking the judge in his father's case to give a later sentence to his father, Jack Scott, the pedophile. Imagine writing a letter to a judge asking leniency for a pedophile. Imagine asking everyone you know to do the same thing because Jack Scott, the pedophile, was so sick with an inflamed prostate and he was so stressed from leaving the church and he had low lithium levels and this was all just too stressful and he, you know, he just accidentally raped a minor because of that. Imagine asking everybody you know to do that and then st them still wanting anything to do with you afterwards. So in oh. this case, about 140 people did say yes and wrote letters supporting Scop. What? Yeah, that's a little that's a, that one got left out of the Scop episode. Oh, yeah. But imagine asking people to write that letter, begging the judge for probation, which is what they were asking for, for a pedophile, and then turning around a couple months later and getting the strictest possible punishment that you can give for a side hug between consenting adults. Yeah, Ken Scott, if you find yourself listening to this, I know that you are a reformed evangelical who thinks it's totally fine that women can wear pants now. We heard you on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, so I know that you do this sort of thing. But if you want to come on this podcast and this program and explain how you could possibly justify this dichotomy that is seemingly pretty contradictory and pretty hypocritical, I would personally love to have you as a guest. Uh, just a warning, I'll probably be interviewing you by myself because I think that the sound of your voice would probably make Sadie want to Hulk smash <laughs> through some drywall. Like her name was Kyle and she just chugged the monster. I did have a fair amount of uh, just rage uh, listening to that podcast. It was something. It was. It was something. But while we're on the topic. Okay, here's the deal. What Kenny had to say about his supposed transformation in recent years certainly sounded sincere. And I would want to give him the benefit of the doubt. 
I think if this really is a sincere change in his life and not just a rebranding, I think he would want a chance to apologize for this particular incident. Yeah. And I mean, if you were a cult member and you were raising it pretty heavy with your dad being a pastor and all, like, just imagine if you were raising it like somebody like he was with your dad being Jack Scott and your grandfather being Jack Hiles. So I say, yeah. And that's why I don't want to totally like I well, I do want to totally tear into Ken Scott over this, but I feel like I need to, to be restrained because I completely believe that he did the wrong thing towards me. And he has said some things recently that I don't agree with either. But I do understand, I do empathize with what it means to be on that personal journey of being deprogrammed. And I do understand that every one of us who has been through that has made some missteps on the way out. So yeah, I do feel a lot of anger towards him, but I am trying to be restrained with that anger because I am, I would like to be hopeful that he will show himself to be sincere over time. And I certainly hope that he's been deprogrammed. Um, yeah. But you get, so you get dragged before the disciplinary committee for the most like inconsequential physical contact. But I've got to ask, so like, how do they catch you? Oh, this is the great snitching incident. Like I talked <sighs> about this, like, somebody I thought was cool saw us and either it was that person who turned us in or the security camera game at Hiles Anderson was a lot better than I thought. And this place is like a prison. So I, I've got to like, if this place is like a prison, you know, do snitches get stitches? No, snitches get, um, Snitches get RA positions. Uh, I got the strictest punishment that was possible. Uh, so what I got was a um, rest of the semester don't speak to your boyfriend penalty. Uh, and uh, with the side of if we catch you, you're expelled. Wait, how, do, how are they allowed to do that? How do they tell you, oh, you can't talk to somebody? They're allowed to do anything that they want. I know you don't want to go into details about this on the podcast. But there was a time you mentioned earlier that you were being threatened with actual violence while at Hiles Anderson and they didn't bother to do a no contact order for that but for this they'll do a no contact order yeah so there was a staff member who had direct knowledge of me being threatened and did nothing to help me be safe was this person a mandatory reporter uh as far as I know yeah I have to look into Indiana state law to be sure wow but for a premarital side hug in an unapproved area yeah my social life is over so let's, out of one side of our mouth, we're going to make excuses for a pedophile sexual predator, Jack Scott. And then out of the other side of our mouth, we're going to um, just condemn somebody who is, who, you know, we should, the administration should be aware is in a terrible mental state who got a hug. Um, and I also wanted to point out that this is after there is a staff member who is aware that I was suicidal shortly before this. So either... That staff member never informed the administration so that I could, you know, they could check on my safety. Either either that person never told anybody or the administration knew and they went ahead to severely punish me without any kind of mental health check, safety check. So everything about this place seems highly illegal and extremely dangerous. And it <laughs> makes perfect sense why they didn't want any of you guys to go anywhere near the press. So this is like what made it really kick in. I'd spent this entire year trying, completely burning myself out to be the best little Hiles Anderson student that I could be. But in the end, it all became clear that my safety, much less my growth or my happiness, was not any kind of priority to these people. So it started to, I started to realize that I was just a cog in the wheel. And this incident really made all of these other little experiences make sense. So this is about the time when you decided that you were going to leave uh, Hiles Anderson. 
uh, my parents knew about very little of the things that were going on to me there, but they were becoming more and more insistent that I not go back the next year, regardless, just like screw the Jericho plan, we'll figure it out. And I had been so dedicated up to this point that I would have wanted to you know, go against my parents and stay at Hiles Anderson. But this final incident just made me angry enough to just leave and just not go back. So your parents didn't want you going back to Hiles Anderson, but they were still committed to the IFB. I really don't know. Uh, I think at this point, everyone in my family and I mean, so many of my friends at will, friends as well, um, we were all on our own path out, but every path looks a little bit different. So I don't know, you know, where each of those people was. So you eventually, so uh, you eventually made the decision to transfer to Pensacola Christian, which is still an IFB affiliated Christian college, but it's a liberal arts school, not a Bible college. Um, and I think um, as of 2013, they actually had some accreditations. Right. And in the next few years, I started to adjust to normal life. And that's when I really started to dig into the material that we discussed in the first three of the uh, first family of fundamentalism episodes. Right. Because uh, uh, Pensacola Christian is still a pretty conservative institution, but it's nowhere near as repressive as Hiles Anderson. No, it's not. Every time I see a clickbait article about the strictest college in the world and it's referencing Pensacola, uh, I just I just crack up. I've never seen one of those articles. Okay, uh, if you Google like strictest Christian college, you'll probably get an article about Pensacola. Because I think I think there's a cracked article, honestly, uh, because Hiles Anderson isn't nearly as well known to people outside the IFB. But PCC, like they have their own issues, they have their own problems, and they are strict. Uh, but it is not just the the absolute toxicity like Hiles Anderson. Oh, yeah, I mean, when you say PCC, I always think of Portland Community College. But- I know I've tried to get in the habit of saying Pensacola Christian or Pensacola because it confuses yeah. people in Portland. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right here for Pensacola Christian right now, and it says that there was one occasion where they expelled a victim of a violent and brutal rape because she was, quote-unquote, because she was a fornicator. Yeah, they definitely still have their problems. This is, but this place still seems like a breath of fresh air compared to Hiles Anderson. Yeah, like that, obviously, that's still a, a terrible thing that should never have happened that's uh, horrible pensacola needs to be responsible for and you know not do that and fix it and but anyway the 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 prevalence of that sort of horrific thing is much lower at pensacola so you decide that you're leaving hiles anderson and well we're talking about you being rebellious i you know maybe i want to go back to something from a previous episode if i may that so this new boyfriend that you got a scarlet letter for side hugging and this is the one that you're forbidden from seeing so this is the guy that you told us about kissing for the first time when we were in our, our episode three in our, or episode four or something in our dating episode. Yeah, that's the guy. So I think that puts this into perspective. I mean, we like we talked about being an emotionally charged situation in that episode, but I can think that like now I really see the picture like kissing was so against the rules and doing so was a massive like mahusive act of rebellion on top of the fact that you're like not allowed to talk to him and you, I assume have to meet in secret and you both know that you're going to be spending a lot of time apart because you're going, you know, your lives are going in different directions. I don't want to be all woe is me about this. No, because I did make my own decisions and um, whether or not I would choose the same thing today, I, I feel like my decisions are something I can stand by. 
but yeah, this, this is, this is one of those situations where your own personal problems can be so blown out of proportion and become such a big deal. Like, this is what I was saying in that dating episode. Like, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be this kind of movie level drama. No, this isn't like even movie level drama. This is like soap opera level drama. Right. And like, that's not an ideal situation. That's what this is. You're, you're living in like a, a, a English <laughs> language, like white people telenovela. Okay. That's, that's totally accurate. And it shouldn't be. Like, things shouldn't be that kind of a big deal. But what I want to focus on, I think, is how angry I was about what I had been through at Hiles Anderson that year. I was I was angry at Jack Scott because I still saw him as responsible for just ruining my life and ruining everything. And I think, really, like, this isn't just, like, a bad scenario for a first kiss. This is a bad scenario for anybody to find themselves in. Just, like, that kind of drama when I was already in, in such poor mental health, it was just bad. So I think what's interesting here is that we've got this sort of knife edge balancing act where on one hand, you were angry at Jack Scott for ruining everything. But on the other hand, Jack Scott's abuses and his crimes and like the fallout from that, that's starting to pull the wool from in front of your eyes. So you're starting to see like all of the problems in this world that you're living in. So is this like when you started researching outside information about the IFB? Yes. And of course, I couldn't reach any of this information over Hiles Anderson Wi-Fi because it was blocked. Uh, and they could also just they could reach any page that I so any page that I visited, they could link that to my student ID because, you know, control. But those first months and years after I left Hiles Anderson, I became really interested in the truth between the truth behind all of these things that I'd kind of vaguely heard over the years. So I think the first thing I got my hands on was actually Scop's sentencing documents because if you go oh if you go back to the the recording that we played of the announcement that was made to Hiles Anderson's student body on the day that he got sentenced there's a lot of vagueness and it was difficult you know and and don't talk to reporters so it was kind of hard to know what exactly had happened and I wanted to know so I got a hold of his sentencing documents and then uh, the Chicago Magazine article, Let Us Pray. Before long, I was able to dig in and find the biblical evangelist article about Jack Hiles. So the Chicago Magazine article, which um, I have linked to in the show notes, that was the first article that you had me read back at the beginning when I was really trying to research into what this cult was all about. And to me, that painted a pretty disturbing picture. So yeah, so most of the time... Um, if the Polish Shaft video and then other clips like the We Love You Preacher song, if that doesn't completely gross somebody out and like give them enough cult weirdness to, to satisfy them where they don't want to talk about it anymore, the next thing that I send to my new buddy who wants to hear about being in a cult, the next thing that I send them is the Chicago Magazine article because that's the big picture. And then I like that gives you the framework to start understanding my stories. Um, I want to say that this article is a quality piece of investigative journalism. Oh, yeah. And I would highly recommend that people read it if they are interested. So um, when you're reading this article, uh, so Sadie, yeah, when you're reading this article, do you believe that what you're reading is true or are you skeptical? So like, is there still a part of you that is thinking like these are the people the, like these people that are writing this article? have it in for the ministry and are trying to take him down. So I still doubted the parts about the Hiles Nischik affair, uh, but I had to accept that the Scop stuff was true because I was there. So that allowed me the the space to consider, well, I know the Scop part of this is true. Is it possible that the Hiles part is true as well? 
And I know that we covered this in the past, but like up until literally just about two months ago, you were still like in your mind, you were still convinced that Jack Hiles was just a good man who was misguided. I think that it would have been too much to expect that you were immediately just ready to believe the worst of everything that you would ever heard about him. And so because Mm -hmm. of this progression of this leaving and, you know, this exploring that you embarked upon, and because it took a while, we can't pin down an exact moment when you were officially out. Um, We can't pin down like an exact moment when you stopped believing X and started believing Y. And so where we've taken the narrative of this episode today is to basically is to the point where you started to just do the research to to do your own research and and started to like make your own choices about what information you were consuming breaking information control that's like a vital part of leaving so i'm sure that for some people when they were getting out it was just like a you know a snap where something happened and they were immediately just ready to denounce it all like jack house jack scoff everyone but for you the process of getting out is like a process and it still takes years and you know even in some respects it's still ongoing yeah for me it was well i guess seven years and ongoing as i still learn more about this stuff uh accessing outside information was really scary for me at first and allowing myself to believe it was even harder and I do know that some some people, even people that I know, were out and just immediately done. But I can tell you that that is very few people compared to those of us who have taken a long road to healing. And that's like one other major thing I wanted to hit in this episode. It is very rare to find someone who got out without serious damage. It is very rare to find someone who is able to leave a cult behind in a short time. And it is very rare to find someone who is able to heal alone without either strong family or friend family support or a really good supportive partner or a mentor or a therapist or some combination of those people. So I think it's really important to say to our listeners, if you are someone who came out of the IFB or another cult or high pressure group or abusive relationship, whatever, if you can't do it immediately, or if you feel broken or permanently damaged, or if you feel that you can't do this alone, that that is the most normal thing in the world. That Almost no one can do that. Yeah, and I want to say something to all of the people out there who are listening who aren't cult members, but maybe, you know, maybe you know someone, maybe you care about somebody who has joined a cult-like group or has begun to follow some, like, some sort of really dangerous or problematic ideology, is that if you want to help these people, I, like, you've got to listen to Sadie's story here because maybe they believe all of the propaganda or whatever. Maybe they believe all that's true. There's going to be part of them on the inside, somewhere deep, you know, somewhere that there's like some tiny amount of doubt and you are not going to be able to browbeat them into agreeing with you or into leaving the group with whatever new information or better information that you can give them because they'll always find a way to deflect that. Uh, What you're going to need to do, and maybe, you know, this is difficult work. This is hard work is that what you need to do is you need to find the little piece of doubt that is in the back of their head. That's like buried and you need to nurture that. And most of all, they're going to need to discover things for themselves. If it, I mean, if it means for you that you just can't handle being around them, you know, I respect, like, full respect, I respect your decision to cut some of those people off because, you know, some of these ideologies are legitimately dangerous. But that doesn't mean that they have become a worthless person. You know, they're worthless as a person because, you know, the brainwashing has made them just as much a victim 
just as they can, you know, be the perpetrator of a violence or, or a perpetrator of, of a repression. And if their ideology and their beliefs are dangerous enough, they can be a victim too. I, I do. I really agree with that. Okay. So think about what I said, uh, the, the pain I was in and the sleep deprivation and lack of food and complete brainwashing. Do remember when you're talking to, to these people that this situation is going to need a lot of gentleness and tact. I, but I also think you're right that most people have some amount of doubt and are open to the truth. And if someone is not going to listen to the truth, they they might just be me when I was 16. I don't think there is anything that could have been said to me that would have changed my thinking because my my wonderful uncle and some of my cousins really tried to reach out to me before I was ready. You are absolutely right that if, if this person is not somebody that you can be around for your own mental health, maybe if you're able to, you can try further down the road. Um, and you can always hope that that person will will find this information elsewhere as well. You do really have to take care of yourself. And so the other thing that I want to say is that just because somebody is in, is in a group like this does not make them unintelligent. It does not make them stupid. And it does not make them bad at critical thinking. Often, you know, what I've found and what I've seen is just the opposite. I think that very often smarter people are sometimes easier to ensnare in groups like this because they're more willing to engage intellectually with different beliefs purely out of just like intellectual curiosity. So their brains are often really, really, really good at building defense mechanisms in order to, you know, deflect information that would normally be bad or untrustworthy. But these mechanisms can be hijacked and made to reject information that is contradictory to the brainwashing. So and if I may, uh, Sadie, I'd like to use an example from your life. Is that cool? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So, just from talking to you and hearing you talk about your father, I know he is a man whose intelligence you hold in quite high regard. I know from talking to you that he is intellectually curious. You know, he reads a lot of books. You have described him to me as a smart man. Yet, even he had his mind and he had his beliefs held captive in the IFB for decades. And what, what's more is that he dove in like out of his own free will after hearing and, and listening to sermons from Jack Hiles and engaging with this theology on an intellectual level. Right. And that is one of the biggest points that I want to make with this show and with being so public about my story is that cults are not full of unintelligent people or strange weirdo people. Cults are full of intelligent people. Think about Voyle Glover, who wrote the book Fundamental Seduction way back in the 80s, calling out Jack Hiles and First Baptist Church of Hammond. He was an attorney. Cults can attract any kind of person. And it is not at all uncommon for normal people, good people, intelligent people to be caught up in this kind of thing. And whether you're trying to unbrainwash someone that you care about or whether you're trying to do work on yourself, finding evidence is always going to be key. And I talked about this way back in the second ever episode of this show. But when you're trying to uproot a toxic or incorrect belief, it's almost impossible without replacing it with a new belief. So what you're looking for to help yourself or to help others is evidence that will help that person form a new and more accurate belief. The one thing that I wanted to kind of explain here towards the end, people sometimes say about themselves that they left the IFB because of a scandal. Um, or it will be said about people that they left because of a scandal. So you left because of the Scop thing. You left because of the Hiles Nischick thing. You left because of the Combs scandal. You left because of the Ballinger scandal or whatever else. I didn't leave because Scop raped a minor. His crime, his actual 
his actual crime had little to do with the reasons that I left. I left because Scop's crimes and these other incidents opened my eyes to see a system of abuse. So it's really reductive when you say, oh, so-and-so left because of this scandal. Well, so-and-so left because that scandal opened their eyes to see a corrupt system because that scandal opened their eyes to learn more about the system that produced uh, men like Jack Scobb. You know, I, I would never want to say that I'm thankful for what happened with Scobb in particular. I'm not thankful that he did what he did, but I am thankful that he got caught. Uh, and I'm very thankful that he went to prison because that's something that, that we don't always get to see is justice. So that is something that no. I'm, that I'm really thankful for. Especially for powerful men uh, who are abusing uh, mm -hmm. young women. Mm -hmm. that, uh, they don't always get the justice that they deserve. And uh, Scop actually went to prison, and that's something that I'm certainly thankful for. But I think you'll, you'll hear me talk a lot about the, the concept of gifts. I really dislike when people say things like, oh, you were raised in a cult, but at least... You know, oh, well, but at least you never got your heart broken by a high school boyfriend. Um, or you were raised in a cult, but at least you got a good work ethic out of it. I don't like looking at it that way because I, I feel like that's trying to mitigate, you know, my damage and the damage of other people who are victims to an even, even greater degree than I am. What I do like to, to, how I do like to perceive this is the idea of gifts. Being raised in an IFB pastor's home, I have a gift for public speaking. That is, that is something that comes naturally to me, you know, when I've had to speak in public in work situations, it's been fairly easy for me. So it's a, it's not an at least, but it is a gift. And I think scop getting caught, I think that's a gift. Uh, we would never want to say, you know, that we're, that we're happy that he did what he did or that it's okay, right? That it's okay that he did what he did because it got a lot of people out because scop's crime had a real human victim who is no doubt still suffering and may suffer for the rest of her life. So we would never want to be disrespectful and say that it's okay what happened because, but it is Scop's crime and Scop's getting caught. It is a gift to people who are able to use that to get out. It's a, if that is your pathway towards leaving, then you can, you can accept that as a gift without having to be reductive of the victim's experience. I'm just, I'm, I'm so thankful. And I feel like um, maybe we should have called our podcast that because that's all I talk about sometimes. Um, I'm thankful for the help that I got. And I'm so thankful that, I'm thankful that my mind was opened at the right time to start learning. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the information that I was able to find that all the things that we've linked on all, on all the show notes of the First Family series. I am thankful that at the right time, I was open to change. It was the scariest and hardest thing that I've ever done. But I am, I'm happy and I'm proud that I get to, to be where I am. And if we do have any listeners that are still kind of on the fence or still uh, in the IFB or a different cult, I just want to encourage you to, to, to keep your mind open to evidence. Because like I've said, it took me seven years to get from being a Hiles Anderson student to being where I am now. You don't, you don't have to rush. Just find, find evidence. Take a look at that evidence. That was beautifully put, Sadie. Um, 
And it's when you say things like that, that I'm glad that we share this platform together. Um, and that anyway, I, I want to say to everybody, you've been listening to the leaving Eden podcast. I'm Gavriel Ha Cohen, and we now regret to inform you that it is time to end this episode. Um, but if you enjoyed it, if you found it compelling, Please subscribe, you know, please recommend to your friends. Uh, you can join our Patreon where we have uh, special extended episodes that you can listen to. You can follow us on social media. Um, the podcast is uh, Leaving Eden Pod on Twitter and Leaving Eden Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Sadie, if you want to plug your social media. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie. You can find me at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, you can also join our podcast Facebook group. What do we decide that it's called? Eden Exodus? Eden Exodus is the current name, yeah. Yeah, join the join the Eden Exodus Facebook group. As always, uh, you guys have a nice day. We'll be back on uh, Thursday for a homework episode, and that's going to be wonderful. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and as always, you yeah, have a nice day. Uh, goodbye. But old rolling river of time Peeled me into many days No regrets, no confusion There'll be no pollution I'm so thankful I've decided Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.